morning. I want want to go to um, John chapter 13, please. We're going to step back into the discussion of God and government. We're looking at the biblical doctrine of how God interfaces with government. And I'm asking for um, John 13, because in this passage, the Lord Jesus is going to teach um, something really important about the state of affairs that we're in, just sort of in passing. In verse 16, well, verse 15, Jesus said, um, after washing their feet, let me, let me back up to verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is discipleship training. Jesus was doing it with them throughout his ministry. On this last night of his ministry with them, he taught them by physical example with washing their feet, serving one another humbling themselves before God to, in God's interest, take care of the needs of the other in the position of a slave. This is the posture Jesus adopted. And he said, without any question, I explicitly explicitly am showing you this posture that you assume following me and caring for the needs of your brothers. That's part of the lesson of the washing of the feet. I want you to hear that if, if, um, If I then the Lord and the teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is not an ordinance to add to baptism and the Lord's Supper that we now wash people's feet in the the service, right? That's not what he's talking about. This is that there is an attitude and a posture we assume providing the needs that the others have without regard to our own station. Jesus is the ultimate king, the ultimate Lord, the ultimate glorified, highly highly exalted person, the great celebrity, the person that has the biggest car and the largest house and the highest uh, of everything. And he's putting on the towel. He takes off his outer garment, puts on a towel to be a slave. Now, what does this have to do with government? This is the attitude of the king of kings and lord of lords regarding his proper place is in God's order, in God's arrangement, God has it set. You don't have to establish your position. Jesus is set. He's comfortable. He's, in fact, able to say, I'm your teacher and your Lord. I'm in charge here, and this is how you do it. And it's shocking to us, but it is uh, sanctifying for us to see the necessary repentance in our own attitudes For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. And you could say, well, okay, so when there's a hospitality situation in the the specific application of this illustration, when someone comes over and they need a basic hospitality function like clean off your feet from the dusty trip, so that you're comfortable and so that you're, you know, you've got your hygiene taken care of and usually a household. I can take care of a person's immediate hygiene needs when they come visit. 
if you take the local specific application, this doesn't say much about our lives at all. At what point, okay, so I'll put out a rug. We've got little rugs, but you can even get a little rug with little brushes. And when people come by, they can, they can brush their feet off. In fact, if you've got the kind of house that has like tile when you first walk in or something, like, like a, a mud-friendly sort of thing, they can take their shoes off if, if you're, you know, like Canadian or whatever. And then, and then they can walk in your house without being dirty in their feet because they've got shoes that they've taken off. And so, hey, we're walking around on the plush carpet and it's comfortable and that's nice, right? So there's not much application here if we take the direct like hospitality situation of that culture when they had sandals and gritty, gritty streets and they had dirty feet when they went in the house and then you'd want, the slave would come wash their feet. This has really no application to us today. But if you take the principle that Jesus is saying and you abstract it to what he, what he would do with this, which is whatever the need is that the person has that would be good for them, that God would like for them, whatever loving thing should be done toward that person that God would like to see happen for that person, then you do what's necessary to make it happen because God has you, because you've got your position established, because the dignity of our status, the dignity of our station as believers in Jesus Christ is serving and not worrying about the pride of our place or the the dignity of our position. The dignity of our station is disregarding. Oh, I shouldn't have to put on the towel and wash somebody's feet. Sure, I'll do it whatever is necessary, whatever helps, whatever is the loving thing. And it's with disregard to self. I've once illustrated this Christian love this way. We have a thought that we're going to hang on to, this, to the fire escape and the, 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 the ladder, whatever, doesn't quite reach. So we're going to try to, so the, there's a fire down there and the kid can't get out and you've got to reach down and get them. And, um, and then they can get out this way, right? So you've got to save the person for the fire. So you're going to pull them up this way. Tough illustration. Let's just go with it. You're going to hold on to the fire escape uh, railing, and you're going to reach down, and, uh, and if you can reach them, you, you, you'll get them. Uh, if you can, but, but you can't let, let yourself go, you'll die too. And that's not exactly the Christian attitude about helping and loving. It's not exactly. It's close. I mean, you are willing to help. Like my, the back of my hand's getting burned with the flames trying to help this person, but it's not quite the illustration. The illustration is God's got your legs. You're, you're fully going for it because God's got you. That's the way we think. That's the way God is teaching us to approach this. And that's a lot of what we'll read in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 6. Don't worry about these things. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and God will add all these things to you. God is your provider. You're his agent. You're his worker. You're his person doing his work. So he's responsible for the, to, to hold your legs, to have you. And so... This is the attitude that we come with. Now, this isn't how the world thinks. Now, I want to, the reason I'm bringing this up, this obvious Christian ethic of Christian, self-sacrificial, agape, Holy Spirit-empowered love, the reason I'm bringing this up in God and government is that no one goes to our halls of government with that attitude and then governs by that attitude. That is not the nature of government in the time in which we live. That's not how it works. Our legislators, our executives, they don't think this way. They don't promote this. This is not the attitude. And when you think someone does, or if you think a party or a platform does, just understand you're being fleeced. They don't think this way. 
about their role. Now, what if they did? What if you went to government and said, Christian love, do, doing God's work without regard to myself and my own aggrandizement and seeking the benefit of, of the other for God's sake and according to what God said, if we just held on to that. Of course, you wouldn't last long in Congress. You might get a couple things done and then you'd get, you know, they'd witch hunt you out. You would do the right thing for the right reason for the benefit of the children. And you wouldn't say, well, okay, do people want to allow transing youth, like puberty blockers for youth, or do they not want it? Which one gets me more power? Blue people want to allow puberty blockers. Red people don't. So if I pick blue, then I've got to promote puberty blockers for children because that way I get voted for and I get power. And none of that is the way to think about the children. See, the, the, the system is hopelessly corrupt and broken because it's administered by broken and corrupt people. And I love our system, don't you? I love civil liberty. I love the idea of individual responsibility and freedom. I love the protection of your body as a sacred thing that they can't just seize your body without just cause, without uh, a a right um, reason. Now, there is a time that you can be arrested, but it's for just cause, all these kinds of things. Like, I love our system, but it's not perfect, and it's been administered, it's consistently administered by broken people. And you have the famous adage um, by, um, by Adams that uh, this, this government only works for religious and moral people and is suitable to no other. You can't function this government unless you have righteousness in the populace, in the electorate. And righteousness in the electorate becomes righteousness in the governing because they're from the electorate. And it's, it's a great experiment, but it's hopelessly broken. It's hopelessly broken. And when we were young and, and excited about our new constitution and this is the way, and it was really morning in America, and we were thinking about how great this was going to be, um, did anybody have a momentary thought of this isn't going to end well? Could anybody have thought, this isn't going to go well because it's administered by fallen people. The people that framed the government knew we were fallen and broken. They invented this Byzantine system that's, you know, it's hard to self-destruct. It's gonna, but it's hard to do it. It's got all that checks and balances and stuff. But the problem in the government, what I'm trying to point out, is, is exactly the problem of our own lives in John chapter 13 is that we don't think like Jesus describes. We don't think about what God wants for the other person, let go of ourselves and and serve and let God take care of the consequences. Nope, we're trying to control consequences. If I do this, you'll do that. Okay, deal. And that's how government works. And it's, and well, I just got to fudge a little bit on this one thing that that I don't think is right, but I'm still going to go for it because I get my other thing. And that's how you govern by compromise right? Even though you are morally opposed to whatever the thing is. Before compromise, early on compromises were things that I'd rather not do, or I think this is a little bit frivolous, or that's probably not the best use of the resources, you know, bridges to nowhere and stuff like that. And now compromise is, this is absolutely cultural suicide, but I have to vote yes for this in order to get the defense budget passed or something. We have to completely violate our morals 
and hold our nose every vote to get anything passed through legislation because it's all broken. And I'm not just here to complain. I'm here to show you your hope isn't in 2024. We started this series uh, right before the midterm elections in 2022, and we said our hope is not in this electoral process, and we still say that, and I want you to have that because if nothing else comes out of the study of God and government, please don't let politics and elections and governmental decisions distract you and your witness from the message of Christ. That's the ultimate takeaway in the time in which you live because you're not called to fix the system. We're not called to frame the system. We're not called to pioneer a new country. We're not called to develop a constitutional system of checks and balances. That's not the mission the Lord Jesus Christ gave us. And if I didn't believe what I believe about the coming kingdom, I might not be able to say that so clearly. If I thought we were supposed to build the kingdom and involve ourselves in the government in such a way that we build a government for Jesus to come rule, if I was a post-tribulationist or a post, I should say, millennialist, that we have the kingdom and then Jesus comes back after we build it, then I might say, well, let's... Let's go fix all the institutions. But since I've read the scriptures and I know that this age ends in failure, since I know that we're in the devil's system and that he owns the kingdoms, he has rule and dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth. Since I know that, I cannot let the kingdoms of this earth distract me from my mission of the gospel and making disciples to and within those kingdoms. I can't let it become a distraction. And that's a tough, that's a tough needle to thread. It's very hard because we know what right is. We know what the right votes and choices would be for the various structures. We know, for example, that the sky is not falling. The biggest governmental power grab you can imagine is if the government says the sky is falling and if you give us money, we can stop it. It's not. It never will. So, well, until Jesus brings the judgment now listen to the description Jesus says, going from the, the attitude of spirit-empowered service, humbling ourselves before God, to be exalted to the position of servant, leader, and selfless sacrifice, loving as Christ commands, as he's building, building, up, building up to his command. In verse 18 of John 13, I do not speak of all of you. What do you mean? If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. That's verse 17. If you know... Notice, if you know these things, I believe what you're saying, Pastor. Sunday morning in church, I am with you. Sunday afternoon at home dealing with those people. I am as far from this as can be. If you know these things, he says, you're blessed if you do them. If you know these things, right, you're blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I've chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me, Psalm 41.9. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Even Judas' betrayal is going to demonstrate that Jesus is the chosen one, the Messiah of Israel. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one He who receives, whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. There is one way, and we're getting, that's John 13. There's one way to John 14, 6. There's one way to God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 13, 20. 
I'm sending you as my disciples, which will make you my apostles, my sent ones, and you are going to be the ones through whom my message, which is really God the Father's message, gets into the world and the people of the world can come to the Father. It's through me because I've sent you with my message, which is my Father's message. That's the pattern. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit, testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. He just prophesied from uh, Psalm 41 that, that he would be betrayed. They asked him, who is it? In verse 26, that the, the one who betrays me is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. It tells John. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And the, now, now this is the key to the government part of this. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Now there's two ways to take that. After, the, after Judas took the sop that Jesus gave him, he could say, or the sop, he could say, you could say that Satan actually entered into Judas, which is what the text said. Or you could say, I know the Bible says, but I don't believe that, and say this is some sort of metaphor or figure that, you know, um, that, that this, Judas has a bad idea or something. But here's the thing about us. We believe the Bible is God's word, word for word. And it doesn't matter what translation. The Greek is very well re reflected here in the English. Satan entered into him. Now, if you've read to this point and you've read the progress of Revelation, you know, beginning in Genesis, and then the question of where does Job fit in historically with the narrative of Genesis, because that's, that's a big question. So you read Genesis with Job, you ask the question about God's enemy, about Satan. Satan doesn't do any possessing in the book of Job. He doesn't enter into anyone in Job. Does he do this anywhere else? Is this something that we see Satan doing? Is this, is this not something that's pretty central to him as a, his MO? I cannot explain in any other way what Genesis chapter one, 3 says, that there was no craftier creature than the serpent, and the serpent said and contradicts God and speaks against God and portrays God as a, as a, uh, as a villain. That is the definition of the accuser, of the adversary. The serpent in Revelation 12 is said to be Satan or the devil, the serpent of old. So what am I saying? This is one of his key things he does. He indwells earthly creatures. He did it in Genesis 3 in the serpent. He's doing it here. He does it in the king of Tyre. And um, uh, that's Ezekiel chapter uh, 28. He does it in the king of Babylon. In Isaiah chapter 14, two key Satan passages that today's supposedly evangelical world and Hebrew studies are trying to deny that this is about Satan in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. And I absolutely think it is because of this MO. He's always indwelling earthly creatures in this case, humans. And the, the world history ends. It began with this in Genesis 3, and it ends with it in Revelation with the man of sin. The Antichrist will be indwelled by Satan. He's, he's a possessor of humans, of being, earthly beings. So what do you do with this? Well, it's just the nature of the world. And notice, Satan's not omnipresent. He's just one being. He could be in one place, apparently, at one time. That seems to be the nature of angels. Um, so he's focal on what Jesus is doing in his, in Jesus' earthly sojourn. And so the one who owns all the kingdoms is focused here on, on uh, what's going to happen. And he uses the government. How does Satan use the government in this story? So Judas Iscariot, indwelled by Satan, goes to the, the, the leaders, the, leader, the Jewish leadership, 
And he tells them, I can show your temple guards where Jesus is. And he leads the temple guards who are the local governing officials that Rome has delegated and allowed them to manage their business besides criminal law and some other things. But basically, they're the government. He brings the temple guards to Jesus and betrays him with a kiss. Judas, do you, do you betray me with a kiss? And that is Satan bringing government to oppress the righteous. Think about what's happening in terms of the governmental move. There are trials that follow. Jesus is brought between, before three different tribunals. And these trials are supposed to be governmental exercises of righteousness and righteous governance and judgment and justice. And somehow, in terms of Satan's administration of this fallen world, even with God's law as one of the systems in view, and the righteousness, the evident righteousness, the manifest righteousness of Roman, Roman law, Roman criminal jurisprudence, which, which is pretty specific, and you're not just able to use lawfare and go put somebody in, on, on a cross just because you don't like them. They have a system of, of, of criminal justice that is fairly robust. And that's part of the problem of Pontius Pilate. He's like, I'm not gonna, if I crucify this guy, I will be guilty of crucifying an, an innocent man. And that is like, no, no, in Rome, I'll be in trouble with my higher ups. If there's an uprising and a civil war here in, in Judea, then I'm going to be crucified by my Roman higher-ups. I'm going to be killed for that because I've maybe not crucified, but I'll be killed, probably beheaded as a Roman citizen. But I'll be, I'll be in trouble with Rome for that too. So Pontius Pilate is in a governmental squeeze. The whole gospel story and, and your life too is dealing with government. And it's, it's the satanic abuse of God's delegated authority structures that were part of what we're dealing with. It's a huge part of the problem. So I'm telling you, I'm trying to describe something that is hopelessly variegated and, and uh, multifaceted. This thing, this satanic infiltration into all systems is like the marbling in, um, in a Wagyu beef. It's like the, it's, it's everywhere. It's all shot through and there's not, you're not going to be able to, to slice in and get this out of it. It's going to be a problem until you have a massive work of kinetic of kinetic military force that brings the necessary change. Now, notice I just said it's going to take warfare. It's going to take military force. It's going to be highly kinetic to get this thing set right. And here's where I part ways with all rabble rousers and, um, and uh, 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 troublemakers within governments. You can't do it by force of human arms. I'm saying Jesus has to come and crush Satan under his feet. Jesus has to come and destabilize this broken system and replace it. Jesus, like the rock cut without hands in Daniel 2, has to come and smash the statue at the point of its feet of clay, at the, t at the point of the timeline, at the end of the revived Roman Empire, and he has to ground all those kingdoms to powder, and the wind has to blow them all away, and then that rock has to become the mountain that fills the whole earth as the kingdom over all the nations. That's what history is expecting. In Luke chapter 4, though, I want to remind you of the present circumstance because if we lose sight of this, if we lose sight of what Jesus is dealing with in his earthly sojourn, by the way, Satan indwells Judas. Judas gets Jesus um, ultimately crucified by, get, by turning him over to the Jews who pressure Pontius Pilate and all that governmental stuff. Satan pushes the first domino, right, through Judas. 
And this ultimately results in Jesus' crucifixion, the righteous man, the innocent man, the person that uh, there is no law to regulate his perfectly righteous character. He is the lawgiver. His character is the standard by which all law would be evaluated because law, it needs to be based on righteousness to be just. And he alone of all the human race exudes God's perfect, divine, infinite righteousness. And yet these governmental systems begun by Satan, administered by Satan, crucified Jesus Christ. Now this is the shock to me of the story. I grew up believing in Jesus dying for my sins on the cross. And I grew up learning about this and studying about this. And maybe you have too. And maybe you're learning about it and growing spiritually now. But Judas getting this ball rolling to get Jesus on the cross apparently is Satan's goal on the the eve of his crucifixion. Satan wants to get Jesus in trouble with the government and the government to destroy him. Now, this is the sovereignty of God, the universal government of God, the big kingdom of God over all the universe. Satan isn't working outside of God's permissive provision. God has a plan. He foreknew. He, in omniscience, knew from eternity past what Satan would do. And he arranged circumstances so that on the Roman cross, dying physically an unjust death in this governmental structure, that that would be the place prophesied in Genesis 22, with, with Isaac on the same place in the mountains of Moriah, with, prophesied throughout the Old Testament, Psalm 22, that he would be pierced, that he would, his hands and feet would be, be pierced through. All these prophecies of the crucifixion, even the pole. John 3 says the pole in the wilderness is a picture of the cross. He has to be lifted up. God knew from eternity past and Satan didn't, that by Satan getting Jesus in trouble, and crucified, this would be the place where Satan's back is broken. That our sins, the fruit of the serpent, the seed of the serpent, would be poured out on Jesus Christ and judged, and we wouldn't bear the penalty of our sins. That that is the place where Jesus would bear our sins. That's the gospel. And notice, even though Satan owns the kingdoms of this earth, as the Luke 4, as we'll see, even though he owns all the kingdoms, even though he can work the kingdoms, even to get the Son of Man crucified, he can't work outside of God the Father's plan and purpose. In fact, this is exactly how God planned it. It's exactly the path of history that God and the story that he's telling. It's exactly what he wanted. In a sense, that he wanted our, our Savior to pay for our sins on the cross, to save us from our sins. Now, Satan doesn't have the ability to do that math. And do not ridicule your enemy, the devil. Do not revile angelic majesties. That's an arrogance that we uh, learn in, in Jude and other places not to do this. We don't bind Satan. Nowhere in the scriptures. Are you empowered or commanded to bind Satan? But notice the way this works. The super creature is not going to be able to beat the creator. That's the, that's the beauty of God and government. The ultimate plan of the universal kingdom of God, having his mediated kingdom in Christ over all the nations is going to happen. It's going to happen in the future. And it isn't happening when Jesus is crucified. And it's not happening now. It's really not. The prophesied kingdom is not with us. And it is not that we misread the Old Testament. It's that people are misreading it now to try to force the darkness we're in now to be the coming kingdom. The coming kingdom is glorious and the curse of the ground is removed and Jesus will be physically present on planet earth ruling. And it's called the second advent when he does this and it solves all the problems. 
And you're not going to see a problem, a solution to our problems in government until that time. There will be times when it's better and times when it's worse, but it's never going to be right because of the brokenness of man and the dominion of Satan over the nations of, of the earth. Now, this is what I wanted to show you. <clears throat> Luke records this in a way that Matthew and Mark do not in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew is the Matthew 4 and Luke 4 are the parallel passages. When Satan tempts Jesus, you know he gives him the threefold temptation, turn stones into bread, throw yourself off the temple, and then bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdoms, that kind of thing. But in verse 9 of Luke 4, you have this picture of the war that we're in and the reason for our constant need for God's word and our constant faith in him and a real vibrant spiritual life. We're really relating to God as he is, not as we imagine. In John, or Luke 4, verse 9, and Satan led Jesus, that's he led him, Satan led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, and that is um, Psalm 91. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I always get this uh, confused because, um, because Luke and Matthew put it in a different order. If you go to verse 5, Satan led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. That's, what I want. That's the one I want to show you. Satan led Jesus to, to look at the kingdoms of the earth in a moment of time. Now, there's power in that statement. Now, there's two ways you can deal with that. You can say, oh, this is like a, this is like a, a figure of speech or, or a just-so story or, you know, it's, it's just a, a way of telling you a story so that you can understand. Or you can say, historically, we believe what God said word for word, and somehow Satan has the power to do this. And I've m- mentioned this before to you. Satan can do this. He could do this in the first century. We, with our technology, can do this today. And maybe there's a Promethean thing going on there where we've been helped with our tech to be able to do this kind of thing. I don't know. But we think we're so, so advanced with our ability to, um, to use digital media, but Satan somehow shows Jesus the kingdom of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. That verse 6 is not stated as explicitly in the same account in Matthew 4. Matthew has a different purpose. He's got a different emphasis. Okay? There's no contradiction. It's just Matthew's portrayal has a little bit less detail on that point. But when Satan says, it's been handed over to me, all the kingdoms, and I give these kingdoms to whoever I, whomever I wish, you have to understand he's not lying about that. The lie is that Jesus can have what God the Father has promised him in a way that Satan specifies instead of what God specifies. That's the right thing, Jesus ruled the kingdoms in a wrong way from Satan's delegation. And Jesus isn't interested in that. How will a Bible reader who watches closely expect the Lord Jesus to do this? How will we expect righteousness to come? We won't expect it from an electoral process. I think you have a worship activity to take place in a voting booth. You do what you do with your conscience before God for his sake, with a full expectation 
that we're not going to fix what is broken in our, in our inherent sinfulness by, elect, by electoral process. It won't happen through, uh, through changing the furniture around in the governmental system. That's what's wrong with the Marxist project in part is that they're going to solve the problem because it's not man, it's property. No, the problem is man. God owns all the property, he delegates it. That's, that's, a, that's a lie that that's a solution, but it's, it's what the kids think is going to solve it. I don't know why they think that. Why do the kids think the Marx way is the way? Oh, because they've been taught. They've been taught to think that way by the educators because Gramsci was successful. Because we have a system of education and cultural entertainment that is driven by a Marxist satanic lie. But there are lots of lies. I'm just saying that you're not going to solve this with an electoral process. And I'm not saying we're inevitably going to go Marxist. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying the ultimate problems are not going to be addressed by an electoral process. So when you go to the voting booth, you do what you do in fellowship with God, for God's sake, to bring about his glory, recognizing that you're not, your hope is not in this process. You do what you do as worship to him. But your hope is not in the process. Here's what is going to change the world. It's in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 tells you how this is going to be repaired, how this is going to be fixed. And it also gives you a picture of what Satan described as all the kingdoms of the earth have been handed over to him and he gives it to whoever he wishes. Psalm 2 is the answer to the question. One of the attacks on the interpretation of Psalm 2 in our day is the psalm um, scholars. The psalm scholars of German, German extraction invented a a system of interpretation called form criticism. I think it's the German is formsgeschichte. Sounds like. (laughs) And what that is, is um, you have different types of psalms based on their features. The psalms are all these poems, these songs, and we can classify them into five or eight or however many categories of psalms. And Psalm 2 is very clearly, they'll say, a royal psalm. And therefore, we have to intuit uh, a system of usage of the psalms, the occasion for writing, as the installation of the Davidic heir, David's heir, on the throne in Jerusalem. And that would be the occasion for using the royal psalms. And what happens if you do that is that you take the clear statements in Hebrew, translated into English or any other language where there's a faithful translation and you take the clear statements of what God says in Psalm 2 and you scale it down to say, well, that's just big language saying God put his king in Jerusalem. That's very popular. Um, I'm reading a a, a biblical theology um, of the Old Testament that insists that that's what Psalm 2 is. In fact, um, uh, people that should know better um, friends that should know better. Uh, don't want to say the name because I'd love them, but they want to say, and you probably don't know who I'm talking about, but they want to say in their biblical theology of the Old Testament that none of the Psalms are messianic. You've been taught here a great deal lately that the, the Psalms are messianic and how, and the entirety of the Old Testament is looking for the, the Messiah, the, the Christos, the Christ. But in Psalm 2, you have clearly the kinetic event that is going to bring about the transformation that we're looking for through electoral processes. 
And we're not going to see them through electoral processes because Satan is the ruler of this present darkness. And the question is, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Why is it like that? It's a great question. And it is the description of the world we live in. The nations are opposed to God. The governmental structures of the earth are opposed to God. That's the nature of this world. Not just in a democratic administration in the United States in the 21st century, right? It's the nature of the nations 3,000 years ago and today. The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Mashiach. Your Bible says anointed. That's a good translation. What in, in Greek it would say is Christos. Say Christos in our English New Testament, we say Christ. But it's, it's the anointed one, the one designated as the king, as the heir. Are the Davidic kings the anointed? Yes. Saul was God's anointed. Anytime God anoints someone, they're the anointed. But is he just talking about the next king in David's line? No, he's talking about the ultimate king in David's line who's going to address all of the nations because they're given all to him as his inheritance. They, they say, here's their message. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. God and his Messiah, Yahweh and his Mashiach, have us hemmed in. We are constrained by the lawgiver, by the creator, by the one who says, I am, and it is so because, because I just am. And everybody else is contingent, and every other circumstance is contingent on God making it so, but God just is. This God, with his constraints, with his insistence, with his instructions, he's too constraining. He is what Genesis 3 portrays. He's holding back. He's holding us back from being what we could be, the diabolical implication. God knows when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. That's why he told you not to eat from it. You, know, you won't die. You just, you'll just become like God. This implication that God's character is not loving, that he doesn't want the best for you, that he doesn't have the highest for you, his creation in his image, his creatures that bear his image to rule under him over his earthly works for all eternity. Nope, not good enough. See that satanic deception that God's way can't be good. Now here's the application of this thought. Let us tear their fetters away and cast their cords away from us. We in our sin don't want God to be in charge. We don't want God to say, and, they're, they're, and thus it's been said, we don't want for God to say it, and then if we listen, we know it. We want independence from him. We want to define righteousness by our own sense of our righteousness. We don't want God to tell us what righteousness is. We want us to be in charge. We want to drive, and God, he can be in the passenger seat. And that's the attitude of mankind, and that's where the kingdoms of the earth are, and that's the problem of Satan's deception of the nations. And that's what we have described here, all the kings of the earth opposing God. Where in the Bible have you seen this? Where has this been on display with the kings of the earth in opposition to God in their self-assertion? Think about your Bible knowledge, Bible, Bible hounds. Where, where have you seen this in the scriptures actually portrayed in some of the narratives? Where does the king take his stand and say, it is, it is I, thank goodness for everybody that I'm here. Where does Gaston show up among the kings? Think about it. My first one, the one that comes to mind first is Nebuchadnezzar because of Daniel 4. It's so clear. He looks around at his creation of his works, of the, the kingdom that he's built, and he says, has there ever been a king like me? And immediately God strikes him with stupidity, 
with, with, he loses his mind. And apparently, the way the, the, the Aramaic reads there, it seems like for seven years, he is a feral, basically uh, mindless uh, human, human body without a human mind. He eats grass, and, and he's, out, he's, out in the, he's out in the yard. Where's the king? He's out in the yard again. And he's lost his mind, and then God snaps his finger. Do you like having your mind back? Yes, thank you. This is the nature of the kings. Nebuchadnezzar is a great example of this problem, but it's, it's something that all of us do in our hearts. We all say it's about me. God and government is a question of divine sovereignty and our recognition every day, every moment that God has the right to be God. And I don't. And in my sinfulness, I can slide into, hey, everybody, it's about me. And unchecked, we become monsters. And here's the repentance. He who sits in the heavens laughs. I've said many times, the Bible doesn't describe God as laughing very often. It's not a very common theme in the Bible, but he does laugh here. It's kind of the laughter of, uh, of Proverbs, I believe, 1, when Lady Wisdom, if rejected, when you find yourself in the consequence of your folly, she's going to laugh at you. She, she, she's very mocking and scornful. When you're like, okay, I'm ready for wisdom, too late. The consequence of folly is on you. Should have had wisdom when it was offered. This is the kind of rueful laughter that is kind of sardonic and it's offensive. Man and you know, little ants are standing up. We're gonna take our stand. God's, it's like in the, the Tower of Babel incident that God had to come down to see what are they, what's, what's that down there they're doing? It's very explicit in, in Hebrew when they built the tower up to the heavens and God had to come down to see what they had done. We, we just don't know who we're dealing with. And once you begin to understand who you're dealing with, we call that the fear of the Lord. This is something Satan refuses to have and he would dissuade you from having. And if you want to govern forever with your Savior, you need to get with the fear of the Lord. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. So this is your, this is your best, uh, this is what you've got to, to fight me with. And then he will speak to them in his anger. So he went from laughter to anger in verse 5 and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then you have a shift in speakers, as you know, and then that king will speak and he says, I surely will tell of the decree of the Lord. Jesus and John consistently said, I didn't get my words from myself. If I spoke of my own things, I would be a, a, a false witness because I didn't get these things from myself. I got my things from my father. and I'm saying the things I heard him say. Listen to it. The, the Messiah will say, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. See, there are two, the two parties. Now, now, the Messiah is Yahweh in the sense that God is one God and three persons. But we're talking about their roles, and this is the role of the Son as Messiah, carrying out the will of Yahweh, the Father, God the Father. And so he says, I will surely tell of his decree. He said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now, what the Formsgeschichte guys say is, well, this just means that the king, you know, the, the sky's the limit, son. You know, you get, you, get, you get everything. I mean, not really. But God is just figuratively saying in big, big metaphoric language that he's giving you the kingdoms. But actually, the text doesn't say 
God is making metaphors. It says all the nations are raging against God, and then Jesus is going to be given, God the Son, or the Messiah, his Son, is going to be given all of the kingdoms as his possession, the very ends of the earth. The kingdom is as his inheritance, his property, and the ends of the earth is his possession. Now, when did that ever happen to any of David's sons? It never has, but David's greater son will experience this. He says, ask of me, and I will surely give these nations. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. That is the second advent. That is coming. The nations of Daniel 2, all the kingdoms of the earth, are going to be crushed in their rebellion against God. Now, those nations that aren't in rebellion against God, don't worry. They won't be crushed. But all the nations are in rebellion against God. That's the problem. It's going to be high energy. It's a high kinetic type situation, like a rod of iron breaking, uh, earthenware breaking, clay pots. It's going to be a violent overthrow. And it is not a revolt. It is the one who has the right. Shiloh, the one to whom the right is given, is going to come and establish righteous rule. It's the hero comes to reclaim what has been uh, what has been lost. And it's wonderful for us. And it's horrible for those in revolt against God. It's, a, it's the horror, it's the terror, it's the worst possible thing they can imagine. And so what do you do with this statement that this is how history tends? Well, there's an application and this turns out to be wisdom psalm. This is a wisdom psalm. This is not a royal psalm so much as a wisdom psalm because it parallels chapter one, Psalm one. What do you do with this information you've been given you can ask all your soothsayers, the kings. They, they always want to have advisors that can tell them the future. Even today, they try to consult astrologers or mediums or spiritists. They're always trying to find out the future so they can make good decisions. Well, here's the future, O kings. So what do you do with it? Now, therefore, O kings, like the king of Nineveh in, uh, in Jonah, show, show some discernment, some understanding. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence. Now. So that when the consequence comes, you don't have to face it. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Hey, the time may, may be up pretty soon is what the psalm is saying. 3,000 years ago, it's saying that. Time is short. I don't know how short. It's short. Yet how happy. Your Bible says blessed. Asherah, how happy are all who take refuge in him. Let me close on this note on this reintroduction of God and government. I, as your pastor, want you to be happy. I want you, you to enjoy your life. I want you to enjoy each day of your life. And I think that that comes from a few key things. I think that comes from having a sense of significance in your day. Like today matters, my life matters, I matter that sense. And I think the only way to have that be true, the only way I learned in Ecclesiastes is to go beyond the sun, S-U-N, to go beyond this earthly life to the actual significance of God's attitude about it, God's perspective on the choices I'm making. What does God think of me? What does God think of my day? What does God think of my choices in front of me? I believe this is the key to true happiness, is that you gain eternal significance in your momentary, day-by-day, moment-by-moment choices. And let me tell you what the alternative to that happiness of knowing that my conscience is clean before my God and I'm walking with him and growing in him and putting on Christ and the power of the Spirit through the word. Let me tell you the alternative to that happiness 
of the fear of the Lord, walking by the Spirit and the word of Christ with eternal consequences to my temporal choices. The alternative to that, and it's the hard thing for young people to get because they think life is long and they don't know it's short. Young people don't understand this because they think they get bored and they think, oh, it's forever. And it's not. And the boredom that they're experiencing is the waste of the precious moments of their lives. The alternative to this happiness that we're describing of the walk by the Spirit according to the word of Christ with eternal consequences for each and every word and each and every deed, the alternative to that is momentary stimulation and diversion. And it always has been. A short-term goal, a short-term thing that I, I, iconoclastic, or I, I'm sorry, I, I idolatrously think will give me something that I want. A short-term thing like a girl, guys, a girl that if I get her, that'll do it. Or uh, 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 an acceptance to something, to a school, or, or I get, get a job that I'm going for, or some short-term thing that I hang my hopes on and I, because I pretend like God isn't there, his attitude doesn't matter, and my significance isn't tied up to him. And so that I think in terms of the little morsels, the little, the little candy bars of this life, little momentary moments of pleasure, and not the eternal consequence of my choices in the moment, that spiritual insight that Paul prays for in Ephesians chapter one. I think you can be happy in Christ, You can rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice even as Paul is in chains. And I think it's described here, how happy are all who take refuge in him. My favorite verse on your expectations and your hopes is 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, which tells you to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he promotes you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him for he cares for you. That's a passage on significance. The cares in the context are your significance as someone humbling yourself. Well, if I humble myself, then I, I lose my, my stance, my importance. Let God have it. Recognize who he is. Start choosing to want what he wants. And the only way for that to be true for you and me, the only way, And the time in which we live walking by faith and not by sight is regular, consistent intake of God's word with our hearts open to know him. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life, for the privilege of thinking these thoughts together, for considering the future, the present of government, the hopes that we have, the way we're in anticipation now. Father, don't let us become idolatrous in the election cycle. It's so easy for us to do that as Americans in the time in which we live. Don't let us become distracted by the temporal concerns where we forget what the time is for. Father, don't let us chase after the little morsels, little nuggets of pleasure in this life as we disregard you and your claim on our lives. Father, give us that perspective, that identity, that sense of who you are and what you want for us. Let us grow in the knowledge, the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To your glory, for your purpose, to do your work in Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.